Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, welcome to the latest edition of the Snooker Scene podcast. We don't take a week off here. We're back. Now, you'll all be enjoying the UK Championship. We're recording this on the rest day. So we're recording this on the Friday. Myself, Dave Pendant and Michael McMullen, you you are listening in the future. So anything could have happened in the next few days. We don't know what's happened. Anything could happen between now and Tuesday. Um, We're not going to speculate about that. What we can say, of course, is all the top 16 got through to round two. Um, the seeding kind of was essentially engineered so that the, the top players would get the easy matches. Let's be honest, that's why it was done. And they all got through. It was still quite a feat. You know, you normally get a couple of shocks. Didn't happen. We had a couple of maximums. And who knows, as I say, by the time you listen to this, we may have had more. Now, what we're going to do in this uh, edition of the podcast, we're going to go through some of the emails that have built up in recent weeks. So thank you for all the emails you've sent. And we're going to start. You'll recall a couple of weeks ago, we were building the perfect snooker player. Um, now, we had, I think, 10 categories. We had a little bit of feedback. William Smith, he said, I found your podcast fascinating around the Terminator snooker player. I was thinking about mine all day. I would have added another category, bottle. For me, I would have had, I would have said Paul Hunter, three Masters finals, all in deciders, such a talent. Naturally, there are other candidates. Many will be in other categories. The only thing I'd say about that is, I, I, yeah, I, I get your point, but I think bottle and temperament are probably the same thing. We did have temperament, and I think that's kind of... Um, intended to be a sort of all-round, you know, general general sort of mental approach. James Wan also, he he's actually come up with five categories he thinks we left out from our, what he calls our Frankenstein player. Bottle is one of them. Uh, consistency, creativity, killer instinct and talent. Now, I would say, again, killer instinct is the same as temperament. Creativity is a good one, though. I suppose shot-making, really, that would come under. We talked about potting. Um, maybe shot-making, maybe... Yeah, I can see that actually... I, could, I, I would agree with that. Talent's a tricky one, I think, because how do you sort of prove talent? You know, I think it's one of those things you sort of think you you recognise when you see it. But what is talent and what is the 10,000 hours of practice to get that good at a particular shot? We think of people like Ronnie, Jack Lazowski would be an example. Tony Drago going back as talented. But, you know, certainly in Ronnie's case, it's not just that. It's all the work he's put in, isn't it? Yeah. People, I think, mistake talent uh, and speed. They think that the two of them go together. If you play really quickly, you must be talented. If you're a little bit slower, you can't be as talented. And I don't really see the logic of that. Barry Hearn said, you know, people talk about talent, but it just means they miss. And I think he had a point there, actually, because it's sort of like if someone plays a load of really good shots and throws in a few bad ones, people say, oh, he's so talented. You know, he's not quite there yet. But someone like Stephen Hendry in his prime or Ronnie in his prime as well, who just don't miss anything. You know, it's not quite seen in exactly the same terms. And I suppose if you're going to put Bottle in there, well, surely it's got to be Alex Higgins, hasn't it? 
you know, depending <laughs> on your definition of it. But anyway, that's another story. Yes. Yeah, I think, I mean, Matthew Syed wrote a book, Bounce, about what he sort of calls the myth of talent. And because I think I've told this story before, but he mm. said that he grew up in Reading and within about a mile radius, radius, all the best player, all the best table tennis players in Britain lived within a mile radius. It also happened to be the town where the National Training Centre was. So, yeah, you know, that's, that, that's not talent, is it? That's just access to the opportunities and the ability to improve. Um, having said that, you know, you can see. I mean, Drago is a perfect example. He was someone who had a lot of talent, maybe mm. though didn't didn't have enough of the the stuff from the other categories. Um, anyway, that was the feedback from that. Uh, we've also in recent times discussed. Uh, sort of snooker in popular culture, uh, particularly the 80s. And we, there was a couple of mentions of Give Us a Break TV series from the 1980s. Tim Hartland has written to say, uh, it's a BBC drama I remember with great affection from my late teens. I might have read this out before, I'm not sure. But anyway, he said, he said the cast was led by Robert Lindsay, Paul McGann, Sheeran Taylor, who also appeared in the short film Extended Rest. We should I think we did read this one before, yeah. Okay, well, any, well I'm not sure. Well, 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 I'll carry on. because Yeah, yeah why not? Extended Rest, that was a short film that Neil Foles appeared in. He yeah. said, and David Dacre, an English character actor who's still alive and kicking at 85 years of age. Other notable appearances in one or two episodes included Tony Asaba, Extended Rest again, Alexi Sale, Tony Selby, who I don't know who that is, I've got to be honest, uh, Dudley Sutton, Tinker in Lovejoy, and Leslie Manville. Fortunately, and contrary to many of the snooker clips you've been discussing, this show is readily available via Amazon. The DVD contains seven episodes and a 95-minute Christmas 1984 special. Then he says, an excellent Christmas gift for any snooker fan. Now, I just wonder if Tim actually was the sort of producer of this show or something, because he's, put, right. he's pushed the whole gift thing quite hard. But I'm, I, I, will, uh, I will seek that out, because it sounds kind of interesting. I think all these things, it's not just the snooker, is it? It's the kind of period piece of being set in the 80s. It just shows you, though, you know, you can't imagine the BBC, or anyone else for that matter, doing a show about a snooker player now, a drama. But there we are. It's 1984. Why wouldn't they? Yeah, I, I, do you know the one that I can't believe? I, I don't think we've mentioned it at any point because uh, we've been talking about snooker and popular culture for for a few episodes now. Billy the Kid and the Green Bay's Vampire. Ah, yeah. yeah. Now, Neil's dad had something to do with that, didn't he? Well, Neil's dad, Jeff, I think he um, he had something to give us a break because obviously they had to have people doubling for the players to show them playing the shots like a professional would play them. So sort of a close-up of the hand, you know, the bridge hand, that that mm. one. That might be Jeff. I'm not sure about that. But here's the thing about Billy, Billy the Kid and the Green Bay's Vampire. Uh, my friend Roisin, she is a writer, a playwright. Um, and she met somewhere Alan Armstrong, who was in um, Billy the Kid and the Green Bay's Vampire. Mm. And he gave her his script, um, wow. which she then gave to me. I, not to for keeping, but to have a look at. And, yeah, I mean, it's clearly like it's been done on a typewriter um it's kind of a little bit kind of you know not uh, maybe formatted in the way you would do on a computer but it's uh, yeah there it is and well well thumbed script it's got to be said um uh, with sort of a few revisions in biro very interesting so yeah we've we've all we're all kind of linked to to that in some way um yeah but, that's alan yeah. armstrong the actor isn't it not the former middlesbrough striker indeed it is yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> Right, let's let's move on before this disintegrates completely. Mm. Um, Neil Dagley, I don't know if he's any relation to Norman Dagley, the billiards player, but uh, we, we, we'll maybe find out. But anyway, he says, your discussion about snooker popping up all over the team in the 80s brought back a hazy memory of a snooker robot. Now, this is not a joke about Steve Davis, so I should say that. He says, uh, my recollection was, was that it was on something like Nationwide, 
and Ted Lowe played against the robot. Mm-hmm. However, the only info I can find about anything similar online relates to a snooker robot playing against the presenter of Tomorrow's World with Ted Lowe commentating in 1981. This seems too early to be the thing I watched, as my first memory of snooker at all was 1985. I find it hard to believe there's been more than one snooker robot on TV, though. Again, jokes about Steve Davis. So maybe you can confirm. My overriding memory of the whole thing was that the robot was surprisingly bad at snooker, even considering how long ago it was. Well, I've been thinking about this. There was a programme similar to Tomorrow's World called QED. Yeah, this is it. I remember yeah. the programme he's talking about. Yeah. yeah, and I think it was on that. Yeah, I think the robot played Jack Carnham. And I think I think Steve might have been commentating on it. And I think Jack won, actually. Well, you'd, so, hope so, really. you'd hope so, really. I mean, what? well, come on. Jack wasn't a great player, let's oh, be fair, well. you know. Uh, and it was QED. I'm, I'm going to say it was probably about 1988 that was on. I do remember seeing it at the time. That, actually, that reminds me of another one, as, as we're on this never-ending theme. Um, what was the programme that Chris Searle was in? Yeah. He, sort of, he tried things that, he, yeah. he tried to learn things. What was it called? It was called In at the Deep End. In at the Deep End, that was it. Yeah. And, Jack, Jack um, Barnum was on that as well with him. Oh, well, there you go. So basically, I mean, you think about it now. Like, I don't think he had ever really played snooker. Um, but the idea was that he was going to uh, practice and learn how to play the game. And it all culminated in him playing an exhibition. And I think it was him and Steve Davis against may have been Jimmy White and Tony Mio. But of course, he was completely out of his depth. He even entered the English Amateur Championship and he played... Someone who actually subsequently became a pro and played on TV. It might have been the original David Gilbert, not the okay, yeah, yeah. The, the current one. Uh, but my abiding memory of it was they uh, Ray Reardon was was also on it, and as he was on a lot of these programs, he was he had a sort of consultant's role where at different times Chris Sir would go to see him and talk about his progress. But Ray always seemed to be on the golf course when Chris went to meet him. He didn't seem to actually want to get to a snooker table. And I remember Chris Searle saying at one point. After this doubles challenge match has been arranged, I go to Ray Reardon to ask him what, how he thinks I'll get on. And it just cuts to Ray Reardon standing on the tee, leaning on his driver and laughing his head off. And he says to him, oh, you will do well to pot a ball, son. In fact, I will say you will not pot a ball. And then it, and then it cut to the exhibition and it was played in front of a big crowd and everything. I think they may even have played it between sessions at, at a ranking event. I can't actually remember because it's so long ago now how he got on in it. But, uh, yeah, that's another one to add to the list. Well, yeah, I vaguely remember that. I'm sure it's probably on YouTube, I imagine. Mm. It will be that out there somewhere. But, yeah, uh, again, it's the 80s. You know, people wanted snooker in all sorts of different programs. Um, but I think we may have solved the, the snooker robot uh, issue there. Mm-hmm. David Burney. Now, he's from Cat- Vancouver, Canada. I met David, actually. Um, and he, Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. We, we met him at the Crucible a couple of years ago. Absolutely. Just, yeah, that's it. I remember him, yeah. Yeah, well, anyway, he says a few things with snooker in the media. There's one quick scene in Lemony Snicket's Tales of Unfortunate Events on Netflix. Wow. It occurs in Season 2, Episode 2, and there's a quick walk by a beautiful table. Nobody's playing on it, but perhaps some people might think, what's that game all about? Another snooker media moment is when Arnold Rothstein in Boardwalk Empire, explains a shot to nothing. (laughs) It happens in Season 3, Episode 10, and I think someone has uploaded it to YouTube, entitled Arnold Rothstein Teaches Snooker, or something like that. Also early in the series, in Season 1, Episode 2, Rothstein describes an interesting wager he made that involved billiard balls. So this is quite niche stuff. It's kind of happening... Mm. uh, A lot of this is is happening 
uh, in the background. Um, and David then moves on to uh, well, actually before we before I move on to that, Phil Yates, who's the, the new Fergal on this podcast, keeps getting mentioned. Mm, yeah, um, he swears that. Um, there's a film Garfield 2, the sequel, to, I'm, guess, I'm, guess, I'm guessing, to Garfield. Um, and he swears that very early on, on in that, there's Garfield or, who, or whoever is watching British TV and he's watching a snooker match that Phil is commentating on. Now, here's the thing about that, right? No way. No, but well, if that's true, surely he can claim money for that, can't he? They're using his voice in a film. Never mind that. Phil's 58 years of age. What on earth is he doing watching Garfield 2? Well, you know, he, he he doesn't miss much, does he? But yeah, so he he swears that uh, he swears that happened. The the great snooker, uh, we haven't mentioned this actually. The great snooker moment, um, I think, in in film is in the, the film Sleuth, uh, Laurence mm. Olivier and Michael Caine. Um, oh well, yeah, of course. Yeah, well, Laurence Olivier is clearing up, and uh, I have to say that the uh, the conversation they have is quite ripe. It's it's not it's maybe post watershed, but anyway, they're having this conversation. Um, and he, he sort of clears the table. Again, I suspect the hand of, if not Jeff Foles, then someone of that ilk, because there are a few close-ups where I'm suspecting it's not Sir Larry actually playing. Um, and, of course, that film is where Morrissey got the line, jumped up pantry boy, never knew his place. Oh, that is, yeah, that is from, yeah, yeah. That's from that yeah. film. We're drifting again, but anyway. Can uh, I just clarify, yeah, it, yeah. anyone listening for the first time, this yeah. podcast is primarily about snooker. Primarily, think, yeah. Uh, yeah, indeed. We think Primarily. we may have lost that somewhere along the way, but uh, we got Anne Mental and Ali's here. I just remember in a few other things. Um, yeah. I don't know if that program is still on BBC in the afternoons called Doctors. Um, yeah, well, it's not on at the minute. I, I, funny enough, because it's the day off. I was, I, I actually, I, I don't mean I don't watch the show, but I was sort of flicking yeah. through, flicking through, expecting to see it. And of course, they haven't been able to make them because of the everything's happening. So it was mm. not on at the minute, but it will be on when they can when they can get it on again. I'm sure. Well, many, many years ago, I remember, again, I think it was on after something else. Um, I was watching just, I caught the first couple of minutes of an episode of it. And I kept watching because it, they were in a snooker club. And the story that the guy playing, it was very familiar. I think he might have been in EastEnders or something. And um, he's, been, he's, he's the other guy is saying to them, oh, what happened to you? You know, you used to be such a talented player. You know, why don't you have one last go at making it as a pro? And he said, Oh, I get all sorts of offers to sign for one of the big agents down in London. <laughs> you know, that that obviously being the route into the professional game. Yeah. So that was another example of it. No uh, no famous players involved in that. Well, he, well, here's the thing. If you ever see an actor actually pot a snooker ball in a in a drama or whatever, the, the ball will always be over the pocket. Because yeah. they, that's the only way. Like the, Some of the frames are strange. Suddenly they get down to the black and it's been over the pocket the whole time. You think, why didn't you pot it earlier on? Um, but anyway, uh, yeah, so that's uh, that's that. But David uh, is raises maybe a more serious issue, which is this. Do you think the snooker tour would ever make a stop in Canada again? We have a rich history in, in the sport over here. And if youngsters could see it in person, they might gravitate to picking up a cue and try to get on the tour to represent the Maple Leaf. Not sure if you guys know, I'm sure you do, that 983 Australian Masters the semi-finalists consisted of Cliff Thorburn, Kirk Stevens, Bill Werbenick and Doug Mountjoy, so three Canadians. Of course, that was the sort of holy trinity mm. in the 80s. I mean, it's a it's a good question. What happened to Snook in Canada that it kind of, you know, the the, the, the supply of talent um, dried up? Because the top players there, they're still the Cliffs and the Bob Chaperons and the Alain Robidoux, same players who were the top players 30 years ago. Obviously, we can't answer that when we don't live in Canada. There must be some reason. Did it disappear from television? I mean, television is such a driver of interest. So maybe... Canadian television stopped showing it 
there must have been something. I mean, it was very, very big there. Clive used to go over there every year to work on the Canadian Masters. It became a ranking event briefly. Um, but, you know, for years they were going to Canada. That kind of stopped. We don't have any Canadians now on the tour, uh, which is a bit of a shame. Yeah, I remember reading about this uh, some years ago. Someone in Canada who was involved in the game said that what had happened there was that the cost of living had gone up so much in Canada that people were too busy to play snooker, which, you know, is, is something you can actually see you know, having a certain amount of truth to it. Not only did they used to show the Canadian Masters, actually, they showed the, the Canadian Professional Championship. And it's funny this is coming up now because only recently I came across on YouTube, uh, someone has posted the 1988 Canadian yeah. Championship final yeah. Yeah. Uh, with Clive on it in a dinner suit. Yeah. Uh, and also someone has posted about six hours of coverage of the Canadian Masters from later that year, the one and only year that it was a ranking event. And that was the first time. I mean, up until then, all the ranking events were in England. But they went there in 88. The crowd is really poor for it. And I think what a lot of people said was they took it to the wrong venue. Now, I don't know exactly what they meant by that. I assume they meant it wasn't located well and that's why the crowds were disappointed, disappointing. And it ended up being dropped. Of course, it was the Canadian Championship that Clive went to in 88 that resulted in him failing the drugs test because... <laughs> He was over there. He got some sort of cold or something. He was prescribed some medication. He took it. He came back and played in, I think it was the European Open qualifiers, ironically against Robidoux, who had won the Canadian Championship. And it turned out there was some sort of banned substance in this over-the-counter medication that he'd taken. It was all cleared up in the end anyway. I love the bit where he says in the book about how Alex Higgins and Jimmy White, when they heard about Clive failing the drug test, thought it was the funniest thing ever, <laughs> which in a dark sort of way, it absolutely is. Well, I remember in Snooker scene, he listed his sort of previous five results, all of which had a nil on the end. So as he pointed out, if it was performance enhancing, it wasn't really enhancing his performance. <laughs> uh, David, you'd have a better idea than us, really, what's happened in Canada. I mean, you know, what is the scene there? Are the young players coming through? Are there opportunities? Um, because as I say, whenever I say results, it, it tends to be players we recognise, you know, from, from the old days. So let us know. Uh, let's move on. James Heat, he said, thanks for discussing my last email about cleaning the cue ball on the podcast before last. We've had, <coughs> excuse me, we've had rats on tables in the Champion of Champions and Championship League, which seem to be universally praised. However, the star tables used in other tournaments seem to attract a lot of criticism. So why don't they use rats on tables for the other tournaments? Well, the, the star tables also attract a lot of praise. You know, I mean, the, 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 there were 58 centuries in the first four days of the UK Championship, including two 147s, a lot of, lot of 140 plus breaks. Um, the rats on tables did seem to go well. Of course, it's a bit different, though, just using it for one week to using it over the course of a season. Maybe if you use them over a season, people would start to complain. The reason, very simply, is, as with most things, it's just money. Star got the contract for the ranking events. Rasson uh, are contracted to Matchroom, who run the Champion of Champions in the Championship League. World Snooker Tour run all the other tournaments, and they have the contract with Star. I went years ago to a Star factory in China, and it's 24-7 operation. You know, it's just the, the demand... In China itself and overseas is such that, you know, they are open literally all hours. Um, that's not a reference to another old sitcom, mm. by the way. But, yeah, so, that you know, they're, they're a major player. And the, the tables, you know, are, I think I think are generally very good. Sometimes it's not the actual, when people complain, it's more the kind of the, the arena and the, maybe the atmosphere in the arena that's the problem rather than the table itself. Obviously, you do sometimes get, you know, odd bounces or whatever, or a table can be a bit sluggish. Again, that can be linked to sort of general atmospherics, but I think in general people, you know, recognise that these are high-quality high, high quality tables. Yeah, I mean, you look at something like the Champion of Champions, you've got one table to put in, yeah. and it's, you know, it's just for one week. As you say, over the course of a season, uh, where you might have events with eight tables, and a lot of them coming 
and week after week. It's bound to go wrong a few times. I think the star tables got a bit of criticism early on because they've been around for about 10 years now or maybe even, even more than that as the, the main table in the professional game. But you don't hear that many complaints about them now, actually. And um, so I, I think that they're absolutely fine now. The Rasson tables, I think, are absolutely great. The one for the champion of champions played really, really well. We've got to remember the old BCE ones. I mean, they just looked so classy, didn't they? That whatever about how they played, they just looked fantastic. And, you know, the real old style to them. And then they, they were in till I think, 93. And then we had Riley tables for a long time. And I remember the Riley tables, just, you know, the color of the pockets was different. And that took me about two or three years to get used to. So I was so used to the sort of dark brown corners of the BCE tables. And when you spend that much time looking at it, it takes a while to get used to it. But um, I mean, if you think back to about 15 years ago, there used to be so many complaints about tables. and Every single tournament, there seemed to be some sort of controversy. Actually, in comparison to that, you don't get it very often now. And I think the tables are generally of a very high standard nearly all of the time. Yeah, I agree. Jarrow Warman, he's from uh, Duluth, of course, in Minnesota. He says, uh, I'm gonna, I, I don't know what the answer to this is, so I'm just going to put it over to you, OK? Mm. He says, there seems to be many more elite-level left-handed players than there are in the general public. Is there any explanation for that? <laughs> no. Let's move on. Um, well, I mean, I, we pointed this out, didn't we, a few months ago, that for the first time ever, the top four seeds in the World Championship were all left-handers. Mm. Now, I've no idea what the percentage of the population that's left-handed is, but I imagine, you know, it's very, very low. Maybe 10%? That's just a guess now. That's not based on any research at all. Um, and then you think back over the years. I mean, obviously, Jimmy White, um, Dean Reynolds and Mike Hallis. OK, they weren't, you know, the very top players, but they were in the top 16. So I, I think probably over the course of time, you'll find it balances out. It just seems at the moment there are a lot more left-handers near the top of the game than you might expect. But there's something about left-handers, and I've never been able to figure out why it is they're just more aesthetically pleasing to watch. Uh, you know, and it's the same in every sport, tennis as well, uh, golf to some extent. But certainly in snooker, there's something about watching left-handed players. Maybe it's because so many of them have been so entertaining, guys like uh, Judd and Mark Allen and Jimmy, who I mentioned. Uh, so, yeah, I, I can't give any possible reason as to, to why. But I think, I think it's just at the moment. I think if you look over the course of time, there haven't been that many. Uh, top left-handed players, and it, it's probably a bit more representative of the general public. Yeah, they've always seemed easier on the eye for some reason. Uh, you know, you look at look at Jack now, Judd, obviously. Yeah. Um, I don't know why that is. You know, who knows? But um, the, I think he's right, though. Uh, um, excuse me, James is is sorry, Jarrow is right. That uh, there's do seem to be more than ever. Um, I don't know. Answers on a I, postcard. I've just looked it up. I have my phone sitting here, right, and I put in. Percentage of population left-handed. And I swear I didn't look this up before. And it says 10%. Mm. Maybe they just heard me say it and put it up on Wikipedia you know, over the last few seconds. I suppose, uh, so there have been three left-handed world champions. There's been yep. Mark, Mark Williams, who's won it three times. Robertson and Trump have so far won it once each. So Jimmy's been in six finals. Yeah, I mean, you know, they've, they've done pretty well, haven't they? And uh, yeah. We will, uh, well, maybe we'll monitor that. I say that, of course we won't. Um, sorry, right. sorry, can, 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 <laughs> yeah. can we just go back? I, I've no idea why I mentioned Mike Hallett, because he's not left-handed. So from Grimsby, scrap, you're, scrap just, you're, just, you're just putting everyone from Grimsby in the same... Yeah, but bun bunching them all in together. Dean Reynolds, uh, well, I was going to say was left-handed. Mio, yeah. He still is. Mio, of course, was another yeah. one. But yeah, well, I mean, if you're talking about aesthetically pleasing, the Mio-Reynolds British Open final hardly, uh, <laughs> hardly fits the bill. But just to clarify, Mike Hallett, as far as we know, is definitely not left-handed. OK. Uh, Mike Shinks, 
Is there any reason why men and women don't play each other? Is there an actual rule? Seems to me snooker is one of the few sports where gender doesn't make any difference between opponents. Well, here's the thing, Mike. Uh, they can do, and they have done. Um, mm. There's no men's world championship. There's the world professional championship, which is what we see at the Crucible every year. The women have their own. There's a women's circuit. They have their own ladies world championship. But there have been women who played in the world qualifiers. Rian Evans in recent years. Onyi from Hong Kong. Going back, Alison Fisher, Karen Corse, Stacey Hilliard. Uh, a couple of others as well, maybe Anne-Marie Farron, I'm not sure. But yeah, women women can play on the main tour. Um, obviously, they have to qualify. There's always been, speaking from a British perspective, there's always traditionally been a lack of participation from girls compared to boys. Part of that, I'm sure, is the way snooker clubs used to be. They were not necessarily the sort of person you'd you send your daughter for two hours every day. Um, so... And also, obviously, I guess if you don't, if you're a girl, maybe you don't see any women on playing on TV. You're not necessarily going to be that inspired to play. Maybe I don't know. But but the, to answer your question, women can play men. Of course, at the Champion of Champions last year, Rianne mm. Evans, Rianne Evans ran uh, Sean Murphy pretty close. So um, that's the answer. It's it's one of the like you say, it's one of the few sports where gender shouldn't make a difference. And yeah, I, I guess like darts as well. Uh, you know, we saw Fallon Sherrick last year at the PDC World Championship. You know, they, they, it is a level playing field in that in that way. However, of course, you have to reach a certain ability to get on the tour. It's not easy, and so far, it hasn't quite happened. The one player who I was a bit surprised didn't actually make much more progress was Alison Fisher, because she was a really, really good player. I remember watching her play on TV, and, you know, she could really perform to a very, very high standard. I think um, Screen Sport used to show some of the Women's World Championship about 30 years ago now, and... Some of the players really struggled actually with playing on television because they obviously weren't used to it because none of the other events were on TV. But when the game went open in 91, there were about five or six players, um, most of whom you mentioned there, who did turn pro. And none of them ever really achieved anything at all. Most of them went off to play pool. Some of them didn't. Stacey Hilliard, I think, joined the police force. But Alison Fisher, I was surprised about. I mean, she won three matches in the Matchroom League against uh, Neil Foles. Tony Mio, I think, was one of them. And also the definitely right-handed Mike Hallis. I think they were they were the three he beat. So I always wondered why she didn't actually make it because I mean most of those matches I think might have been on TV. So she clearly had the ability. And funny enough, we're talking about this. I'm going to be with Alison at the Moscone Cup in a few days' time. She's part of the commentary team, and I've never actually met her because I mean she had gone off to play pool in America by the time I was getting involved in the game. So I certainly look forward to uh, talking to her about this. I have to say, I, I can't honestly think from my limited knowledge of the women's players there have been of anyone who I really thought had the potential to make it in the game. But I do think it'll happen someday. I think someone will come from probably from China because there are so many players there. And I think there are a lot of women taking up the game. They certainly some very good pool players like Siming Chen. Uh, she came over and made an impact, won a match on the TV table at the US Open last year. I do think it'll happen at some stage, but... You know, the likes of Rianne Evans, Ong On Yi, players like that, I just, I just don't think they're good enough to make it at the highest level. And um, But I, I wouldn't be surprised if it did happen at some point in the next 10 or 15 years. Well, it'd be great for Snooker. The publicity would be would be brilliant. Um, and, you know, and, and if they come over and start start doing well, then they've done it on merit. You know, it's not special treatment. Like I say, it's open. The, the, the main tour is open. Professional tour is open to men and women. Women have entered Q School as well. Um, so the, the answer, I guess, Mike, is that they they, they do play each other. Uh, Rob O'Connor. Now you'll be interested in this one because there's an mm -hmm. Irish Irish angle to this. So Rob O'Connor writes: I saw during the Trump Grace match, this was at the Northern Ireland Open, that Angus McAnally was tweeting himself mm -hmm. and Neil Folds. As an Irish snooker fan, 
I only vaguely remember him commentating on the Irish Masters. I wonder maybe if yourself or Michael know much about how he ended up commentating on snooker or just have any stories about him in general. Well, you you can explain who he is in Ireland. I mean, my my understanding is he's, he's, he's the son of Ray McAnally, the, the, mm. the, the, the very well-regarded actor. Um, and Ray McAnally was a commentator for RTE. And I think Angus sort of sort of inherited his role. It would be a bit like Philip Schofield commentating on the World Championship <laughs> because... Um, right. That that's where Angus was well, coming of course, from. Well, of course, Philip Schofield presented Ten Ball on ITV. Oh yeah, he has a vague, vague connection. But anyway, continue. See, everything comes back to popular culture and snooker yeah. back in the back in the eighties and nineties. So yeah, I mean, there was a program called Anything Goes, which uh, was the Saturday morning kids TV program on RTE back in the nineteen eighties. And at the time, I think most of us slated it because you know you're watching someone you know making something out of paper mache. Meanwhile, you turn over to the BBC and you're watching, you know, Duran Duran being interviewed on Saturday Superstore. Yeah. You know, it hardly compared. And yet everyone of my generation now looks back on anything goes with tremendous fondness and nostalgia. So that's where Angus came from. Um, but then, obviously, as you say, he went on to commentate on television. The thing is, he's actually a good player. You know, he's not just, you know, some kind of TV person who happened upon this. And I know he's, he's I think he's still one of the best billiards players mm. in the country. So, you know, certainly from a technical point of view, he knew a lot about the game. Very nice man, Angus. He was on TV just a few weeks ago, actually, uh, because he, I think he sort of disappeared off our screens. Um, he uh, used to present a program actually called The Big Top, which was basically a circus on TV. And it's funny because in snooker, if people want to slag things off, they say <laughs> this is like a circus. Um, you know, Angus probably would have taken that as a compliment. But in, in more recent times, um, he had gone to work as a producer in RT Radio. I don't think he was on the airwaves anymore. And he retired only, I think, earlier this year. So that he actually was interviewed on television talking about that. But, yeah, we, we used to spend quite a bit of time with him in the press room at the Irish Masters. And I always found him to be a very nice chap. Incredibly nice. Very, very friendly. Uh, loved his snooker. And as I say, I think his dad... Ray McAnally. Did he actually commentate on the snooker? He did. He did. Yeah. He definitely did. In fact, Dennis often refers to him um, because I think when they used to talk about the nap on the table, Ray said it was like the fur on a pussycat's back. And Dennis <laughs> often quotes him as having said that. I've got to say as well, actually, about Angus, there was a programme made about 2005 about Alex Higgins. It was shown on RTE. I don't think it was ever shown in Britain, so you probably never saw it. But they tried to get Angus to recreate Mm. The, uh, the, the I have thing. seen that, yeah. I, yeah, yeah, yeah. Now the question is, and you know, there was that was the last year of the Irish Masters, so we've not seen Angus since then. The obvious question is, how many takes did it require to get it right? Maybe it was only one. I don't know. He may be listening. Who knows? But yeah, yeah that, so that's uh, Angus McAnally. Um, now, okay, I have made several vows never to mention the Triple Crown again. Okay, and, there we go. Roll up, no, roll up. No, no, and I was prepared to stick to that. Okay. But we've had an email about it. Um, so you don't question, have to read it. Well, no. Well, I do actually, and I tell you why. Because it's put in the contrary point of view, and you know, we're the, we're nothing if not fair-minded here, and obviously, nothing if not contrary. So. Obviously, 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 that won't stop me shooting it down after I've read it out. But yeah. So Christian Thomas Berger from Germany. Okay, I'm going to read the email, and then I will give my response. But I just want to say, because I know people are bored of this, and believe me, I'm bored of it as well. I was not going to mention it, but a, a listener, a loyal listener, has mentioned it. So I'm going to just read out email as it's been sent okay <clears throat> here we go christian says i would like to give you the opportunity to go on about the triple crown issue again he's got again in capital letters if you if you if you'd like to 
Firstly, I have to say that I like the concept of it and I do think it works. Surely snooker as a sport has to become more, more global as times go by. But why would you want to deny that it has a great British heritage and got big in the UK? So every sport is about tradition, but in my opinion, especially snooker is about tradition. For me, the fact that all the Triple Crown events are in the UK is not a significantly UK-centric approach. It's more about tradition. The point is, I don't think it does prevent the sport from becoming more global if the three biggest tournaments are in the UK. What's more important to achieve is that more people develop an interest in the game, and that's not entirely dependent on the promotion. It's dependent on the opportunity to play the game as well, and that's often difficult because in most countries, you will never have a snooker table just around your corner. Watching a sport is great, but if you feel you never really have the opportunity to play it, it can be frustrating. I agree with the listener of the previous podcast. Those are the tournaments everyone wants to win. They have great heritage, great venues, great crowds, great prize money. They have all the ingredients for being major tournaments. Yes, there are other big tournaments on the calendar now, but not with that heritage. I understand that in earlier times there wasn't much talk about those three being outstanding, but things can change, can't they? And here's another point I'd like to cons- you to consider, and I think nobody's mentioned it yet. When it comes to records, Ronnie O'Sullivan is known not to be so passionate to tell everyone what he thinks about them. But after he won the UK Championship for a seventh time two years ago and set a new record for most Triple Crown titles, he was, in my opinion, very emotional about it and said it was a very important record to get to get to all the media. In my opinion, getting this record helped him overcome the Selby defeat of 2014 in the World Final and gave him confidence to become world champion again, which he did, of course, this year. Now, what, the, what does this tell you? What this tells you is that probably the most dedicated player of the sport took this record seriously. It definitely tells me there is something about those events now that motivates the players to win them more than others. At least I hope in sport it's not a race for which event has the biggest prize money or the longest format, but tradition and prestige as well. I would like to hear your thoughts on this, even if you'd like to say silent about it. Well, Christian, <laughs> you very eloquently put, I think, and I, I certainly just to go back on what you said, you're absolutely right about one of the problems is not being able to play. And that actually now is becoming an issue in Britain. The, as you say, the sort of home of the sport, clubs have shut down. I mean, at the moment, you know, we're in kind of lockdown and tears and no one's quite sure exactly when they can go back to snooker clubs. But in general, actually finding places to play, even in Britain, is becoming an issue. But I know it's more of an issue maybe in Germany and other parts of the world as well, where people have seen snooker on television. And like you say, they can't just walk around the, 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 you know, the, the corner and play snooker. We had our correspondent in Italy a few months who had to sort of travel miles and miles to find a club to play in. So you're absolutely right about that. My feeling, I mean, I'm sort of loath to dredge all this up again because it's kind of been done, but you raised it, so I'm going to, I will respond, okay? I think here's my issue now with the Triple Crown. It's gone from being not a thing at all to something that was sort of a thing, which I supported. As I mentioned in 2003, I wrote about Mark Williams winning the big three titles, so I was kind of for it then because I, I do think it's a big achievement. Now I think it's too much of a thing, okay? We had recently Judd Trump winning the Northern Ireland Open, and it was a fantastic sort of um, victory in the end to, to sort of shake off Ronnie O'Sullivan, winning for a third year in a row against Ronnie, same scoreline, so on and so on. Another ranking title, 19 ranking titles for Trump. Um, almost immediately, you go online, and people are sort of saying, well, you know, he needs to win more Triple Crown events. Well, hang on, he's just won a big tournament, hasn't he? We just watched him win it. It's almost as if... It, it, either it didn't happen or it doesn't matter. Some, I even saw someone said, well, you know, he's still only got as many Triple Crown events as Terry Griffiths. Terry didn't win Triple Crown events. There, there was, no, was no Triple Crown. Terry won the major events of his time, which included those three big events. Terry Griffiths, a great player, 
but there was no talk of Triple Crown. He was just winning the big events of his time. Trump is winning the big events of his time. That includes the Masters that he won last year, the World Championship, of course, the biggest of them all, but also it includes tournaments that he won last season, like the International Championship, the German Masters, the Players' Championship. They all have big first prizes as well. They attract audiences. They attract attention from broadcasters. These events cannot just be kind of dismissed, you know, and we say, oh, well, it's heritage. No, these are big events, you know, and it's important that we have these other big events because you can't just have a circuit of three tournaments. And my feeling is, and I, I will wrap this up shortly, but my feeling is part of the sort of building up of the Triple Crown, if you'd like, and the, the fact that it's become so big, it's caused a kind of elitism in a sport that actually has never been elitist. And it's created a, a, a sort of a sort of distorted perception of achievement. It's everything is about those three events. And you could win, literally, you could win all the other tournaments in a season, 10 tournaments. Oh, but he's not done it in a triple crown. It doesn't matter, okay? If you create this separation between the so-called majors and the rest of the events, it's counterproductive. We don't even have a sponsor for the Masters yet. You know, sponsorship is in trouble this year. We know why bookies in particular, you know, are not spending money. If they're struggling to get them for the Masters, why would anyone, anyone sponsor an event that's considered to be a sort of lesser event? And... One thing that, and this is a final point now, okay? Hopefully we'll never mention it again. Final point. A lot of people said to me, A, get over it. Fine. Okay, you're entitled to say that. But you're entitled to say that. And B, what you've got to understand is you might not agree with it necessarily, but it's become widely accepted. And that's right. It has become widely accepted. Of course it has. Because if you repeat something often enough, people will accept it. That's literally how advertising works. You just keep saying the same thing over and over again, and it becomes part of the culture. And that includes players. Stuart Bingham, in an interview recently, said that he grew up watching people complete the Triple Crown. Well, no, he grew up watching people win those tournaments, but there was no talk of the Triple Crown then. There just wasn't. Now, it's become a thing now, and look, if Stuart wins the UK Championship, of course he's absolutely entitled to celebrate winning the Big Three in snooker. Like I say, I was on board with this until not that long ago, actually, the idea that these three events are special. I'm not, I'm not arguing that for a minute. My, my issue with the whole thing is the Triple Crown primarily is designed to benefit making their broadcast contract more prestigious, which is good for them, of course. It's not necessarily so good for the other broadcasters. And I remember when Sky left Snooker, and one of the reasons was they felt their tournaments were being kind of looked down on. They had an, they had an event always finished just before the World Championship, and the players were sort of saying, we're kind of not interested in this, we're thinking about the Crucible. So my solution, actually, and maybe this will draw a line finally under the whole thing, okay? because the Triple Crown's not going away, clearly, it's not going away. And a lot of people would say it shouldn't. It's, a, as I say, a big achievement to win those three. Why not just call it the BBC crown? Because that's what it is. It's the three tournaments, the BBC broadcast. They're the three majors. So just admit it. It's the BBC crown. It still would be a big achievement. You can call it an achievement. But also it's being a bit more honest about the reasons for it. And that's my final word on the triple crown. Wow. Um well, you told me you were going to be talking about the Triple Crown, and you said that if after this podcast you ever mention it again, <laughs> I have the permission to talk over you yeah. in the style of Alan Partridge repeating to his PA that he's not going to drive a mini metro. That's right. Now, yeah. But see, the thing is, I don't want to do that because I love these rants. That go it's on. not a rant. I'm, no, it's not. No, that's not I a know. Rant. But whatever. Whatever. Had, no, no, I, hang on, hang on, hang on. We had a very cogent, eloquent email, and I'm just putting a few counterpoints. I'm not against the Triple Crown. That's the important thing to say. I'm against what it now represents it's gone away yeah. from being about those winning those three events it represents something different now and i think that's possibly counterproductive anyway continue well i mean you know we, we, i said this to you before that i think that's happened you know in golf that there's been so much focus on the majors that 
some of the other events get diminished, uh, you know, far more than they should. And it happens in tennis as well. But you see the majors there. It's a really big historical thing that you can never change that you know, has been around for generations, really. Um, so that, that I suppose, would, would back up what, what you're saying there. I mean, the, the thing about this is that not only do you say every time I'm never going to talk about the Triple Crown again, and then it comes up. But actually, each time it's longer than the time before we talked about it. So I, I, I enjoy it all tremendously. The one other thing I would say is the irony I always found in all of it is that people started talking about the Triple Crown at pretty much the exact moment in history that the main reason for the UK being a standout event was changed, <laughs> that it lost the best of 17s and went to being best of 11s. But, you know, on this theme as well, we mentioned last week, there's another snooker podcast out there now that Nick and Phil from the Metro are doing. I would love it. In fact, I might contact Nick and suggest him about this. He should do a weekly thing where he goes on about how he doesn't like the idea of the Home Nation series. And then there could be some sort of showdown between the two of you. Um, so, yeah, I've no doubt we'll be talking about this again, Dave, and I'm perfectly OK with that. Well, no, here's my here's the deal, because I understand people are bored. I completely get the whole get over it argument. I get all of that. I just disagree. But here's the thing. If no one emails in about it, I won't read any emails about mm. it and I won't bring it up myself. If people, though, want to talk about it themselves, they're perfectly entitled to. This is a democracy. You know, you, you write to us. Tell us what you want to talk about. We'll talk about it again. But I'm quite happy. And I mean this to never mention the thing again. I think people understand my point of view. I understand their point of view. I'm not going to have a fight in a pub car park over it. It's not that important. But. I do think it's become, like I say, it's gone from not being a thing to being sort of a thing that you can get behind to being too much of a thing that is drowning out now the other tournaments on the circuit and actually I think could be potentially counterproductive when it comes to relationships with other broadcasters. I think I've made my point. Not everyone's going to agree, but there we are. Let's move on before people literally just delete this podcast. So uh, this is an interesting one. James Wan again. He says, I was watching the Northern Ireland Open final when it dawned on me that Judd Trump might actually believe he's better than Ronnie O'Sullivan now. Obviously, Judd relishes playing him, and the reason he's given in the past is that he likes testing himself against the best. Now, however, I think it's more of a case of, I'm better than you, and I'll prove it. The same goes for John Higgins. I believe Judd thinks he's better than him too. I'm not talking about legacy, because obviously Trump is way behind in numbers. It's more to do with how good a player you think you are and your overall quality right now. I compare this with Mark Selby. I think he believes on his day can beat O'Sullivan, which is true, but I doubt he actually believes he's a better player than him. Judd is different, and Ronnie has conceded as much, stating that Trump's best game is better than his and Hendry's. Well, Ronnie says a lot of things. I mean, whether that's actually what he thinks, I don't know. It, my my feeling on this is you should think you're better. <laughs> you know, it, it's hard enough to win. It's hard enough to win these matches as it is. You need, and it is a kind of arrogance. It's a kind of, I don't know. You have to back yourself, and all the great champions have had that. Davis thought he was the best player, and he proved that he was. Hendry definitely thought he was the best player, and proved that he was. I think Ronnie has felt for a long time actually over the years, I'm the best player and I should prove it. And, and if Judd's got that mentality, then that's great. That's probably why he's having such success. You can't go into the match thinking, and some people, even top players, have gone into matches with, with Ronnie O'Sullivan, certainly high-profile ones, thinking, clearly he's the better player. And, you know, oh no, he's going to sort of bash me up sort of thing. And, and that's, in the end, is what happens. So I think you've definitely got to go in and think, actually, yeah, what, I am better than him. And, you know, it may transpire that you lose, but you've got to have, you've got to back yourself. Snooker's a very, very very individual sport and you have to have when you're out there that, that self-confidence otherwise you've got no chance really yeah and Judd is a better player than Ronnie I mean you look at where he is now you, you if you're talking about Judd Trump and where he stands in the game you're talking about Judd Trump since let's say the summer of 2018 when he started that amazing season that culminated with him as world champion 
Now, look what's happened since then. Northern Ireland Open final at the end of 2018. Judd wins. Masters final a few months later. Judd wins. Plays absolutely brilliantly. Then they play in the Tour Championship. Ronnie just about beats him in the semi-final. But then Northern Ireland Open final last year. Judd wins. Northern Ireland Open final last week. Judd wins again. So if you're going to play someone five times in the course of two years, and they're all multi-session matches, and you win four of them, then you're absolutely entitled to think you're a better player than the other guy. And I think he is. And that's the difference between now. I, I, I feel when Selby was number one and the top dog in the game, there was a perception out there that Ronnie was still overall a better player. I think most of the general public now accept that Judd is actually the better player. And recent events have, have underlined that. And I mean, you know, even when Ronnie won the World Championship, he didn't play that well. He missed so many easy balls. He broke down a lot of the time when he shouldn't have. He could very easily have gone out in the second round in the quarterfinal, in the semi-final, And even though he won the final comfortably, there was a spell in the middle of it when his game went completely walkabout. So I agree with you completely that Judd has to go out there believing he's a better player than Ronnie. And certainly for me, all the evidence over the last couple of years is that now, where we are in the game at the moment, Judd is a better player. Well, let's introduce some nuance. Uh, we may as well. We've been going nearly an hour. Um, yeah. Judd, I think, is certainly playing better than Ronnie. That's evident. You've reeled off the results there. Does that make him a better player overall? It, are we talking about literally at this moment or are we talking about, you know, all time? Ronnie's achievements. You, ro- clearly, Ronnie's the better player, isn't he? Well, yeah, completely. But I mean, all that matters. I mean, look, the email here is about the attitude Judd is taking yeah. into matches at the moment. So all it doesn't matter what you did all those years ago. Well, okay, it matters in one sense, but in terms of how you feel going into a match, what matters is the sort of player you are now yeah. on that day because you're playing the match on that day. So, oh yeah, look, there's no question at all if you're talking about all time, then you know there is no conversation to be had there. But certainly over the last couple of years, you have to say Judd's the better player because Ronnie hasn't been winning tournaments. He hasn't been playing well by his standards and he certainly hasn't been getting the better of Judd. This is what interests me, actually, but we'd move it on to Ronnie. I mean, obviously, he's world champion. That, you, can't, mm. you can't just dismiss that. That's a fact. Um, but what I think the interesting sort of pattern to follow this season is how he gets on against the other top players. Um, already, of course, he lost to Mark Allen in the Champion of Champions. He's lost to, to Trump in the Northern Ireland Open. I expect Ronnie to beat 95% of the rest of the players. You know, I'm talking about people outside the top 10 in the world. There's all, there'll always be the odd result here and there. But certainly in the bigger events, you'd expect him to to come good, be getting the quarterfinals, semifinals. I guess the test now, though, is to keep on beating the Robertsons, you know, the Dings, the Mark Allens, the Kyrons, Judd Trump, of course, Selby. Um, and if he can continue to beat these guys, he's going to win trophies. Um, if he starts to starts to sort of suffer a high number of defeats to them, then that's maybe a concern. It doesn't stop the fact. It doesn't stop the fact he's world champion. It doesn't mean he can't go there next year and win it again. But I'm talking about week in, week out tournaments. It'd be interesting to see how he fares against them. There's been a couple of matches this season. I mean, the Mark Allen one is an obvious one. Take away all the controversy. Mark Allen was the better player on the day, um, and Trump was the better player on, in that Northern o- Northern Ireland Open final. So I think it's an interesting pattern to follow. I expect him to beat low ranked players easily, but. In terms of he's going to be winning tournaments this season, he's got to beat the top players. And the one thing I would love to see, actually, over the next year or two, is a lot more Trump O'Sullivan matches. Definitely, because yeah. I mean, the final in Belfast—they hadn't played since the final in Belfast the year before, had they? I think it had been a full That's year. Right, yeah. 
since they played each other. I mean, Hendry and Davis, you know, when there was the crossover between them 30 years ago, as we were discussing last week, you know, they played each other a lot and they met in a lot of finals. Um, So I'd like to see a bit more of that now. And I think, you know, the final last weekend was a bit of a disappointment in some respects. Towards the end, it was really, really good. But the quality throughout the day wasn't perhaps as high as we might expect. And I think that was perhaps why. It's the fact that they hadn't played each other for a year. So that made it an even bigger occasion for them. I think if you saw them playing each other a bit more regularly, they'd bring out the best in each other a lot more. But, you know, someone was asking me about this the the other day. I mean, when was the last time Ronnie was really at his peak? And you think about it. When was the last time that over a sustained period he played, you know, a succession of matches and tournaments at the peak of his game? I mean, even when he won five tournaments in a season, was he at his peak then? Well, he played pretty well, I think. I think he played pretty well that season. I mean, actually, the, the match where he beat Trump, I mean, I commentate on that, that tour championship. Yeah, match. Trump was kind of in control of it. He missed the yellow um, which in the decider, which is basically all he needed, pretty much. Um, and Ronnie eventually potted one of the one of the balls of the season for me. The, the long yellow got him, made a clearance. Fantastic. Um, and I think that's the thing, actually. I mean, you could see what it meant to him. He was, like, giving it plenty, um, which you don't often see from him. I think actually he, if he was honest now, would say he's sort of testing himself against the likes, likes of Trump, you know, in terms of sustaining his career at the top level. Um, you just, uh, we're here again with Ronnie, you just never know, do you? I mean, listen, he could be he could be a top player in 10 years. He's so good. Anyway, uh, from the sublime to Dave Tyndall. Ah. <laughs> now, if you're new to the podcast, well, if you're new to the podcast, you won't have made it this far. But um, <laughs> But uh, for those who need reminding, so, okay, so this this brings together two elements of the podcast. It brings together Dave Tyndall, who has got his own uh, small table at home, and he's been recreating various events, a pop black, a world championship. It brings together us talking about players in popular culture. So Dave has put together a field of players, and it brings together Neil Folds' doubles tournament idea, um, that I happen to know, I hope you don't mind me saying, I happen to know he sent to Barry Hearn and got very short shrift. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I'd love to read the Barry's well, reply to that. Well, I don't think Neil will mind me saying that basically the reply ended, thank goodness you're a great commentator. So anyway, <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, so I don't think that, I don't think Matt Room will be promoting that. But anyway, it, it has had its first outing because Dave Tyndall has played this uh, game. Basically, it's doubles that become singles. So you play doubles with someone, then you play them in a singles match and so on and so on. Uh, we'll get on with it because he's he's not finished the tournament yet, but he's got down to uh, he's got down to the semis, so semi-finals. So we have got the quarterfinals have been played. Here we go. The first quarter. <laughs> who thought I'd be reading this sentence out? In the first quarter, in the first quarterfinals, sitcom favourites Terry and June look to be combining well when taking taking the opener. But Robin Asquith and Bill Maynard levelled at one each after Bill doubled the pink into the middle and added the black for a 22 clearance. Asquith's 45 in the decider completed the fight back. In the, in the second quarter final, the unlikely pairing of Jacob Rees-Mogg and Trotsky eased past Ronnie Corbett and Ray Reardon 2-0. Trotsky's 27 sealed the opener before Rees-Mogg, playing most of his shots with far right hand side, you see what he's done there? Very good, yeah. Uh, wrapped up the second. While there was disappointment for Corbett, the two Ronnie's combo of Barker and O'Sullivan sailed through against Harry H. Corbett and Wilford Bramble. I suppose the fact that at least, well, there's at least three of those people are dead, aren't they? So that's mm. probably, yeah. Uh, O'Sullivan's 31 decided the first frame against the step to and combo, and Barker's 22 clearance wrapped up qualification. 
Not a lot of high breaks in this yet, but anyway, it's, it's early days. Uh, in the bottom quarterfinal, Jimmy White and Stephen Hendry edged the first against Ray Davis and Steve Davis before the London namesakes hit back in style thanks to Steve's measured 58. Well, there's a, there's a good break. Uh, however, Hendry ran 40 in the next to settle the outcome 2-1. With this being the popular culture masters, <laughs> the matches were refereed by Freddie Parrotface Davis. And it, and it was in this bottom game that I had a moment of alarming self-awareness about just what I was doing. About time, really, <laughs> isn't it? Say, say, I was going to say, yeah, we could, have told you this, you. we could have told you this months ago. Anyway, he says, uh, when Steve Davis made a break of 16, I caught myself blowing raspberries on each S when announcing the score. <laughs> he, then, he then sort of, de- yeah, anyway, yeah, we're drifting here, Dave. Let's get on with it. Uh, so now, so, so that, that's the, the, uh, the quarterfinals. Now, of course, the winning pairs now are paired together in a singles match. This is the Neil's format. So he said, Things took an even stranger turn in the first of the singles matches as Robin Asquith lost the first frame to Bill Maynard. Confession star Asquith decided to revert to tight by dropping his trousers and playing the second frame in only his white fronts. It's getting very, very dark now, isn't it? Mm-hmm. He said a, a clever ploy, but he picked the wrong man. The wily Maynard gave Asquith's antics short shrift and compiled a magnificent 89 clearance to bow through. I must admit I gave a fist pump when the black dropped ignoring the fact that I was stood there in only my underpants, pretending to be a bald comedy actor from the 1970s. <laughs> the, wow. wow. The re- I know, yeah. Well, take a moment to just think think of that, and let's move on. The reason was always going to be a clash of styles. Trotsky, as you'd expect, looked happy in amongst the Reds. Hey, But the entitled Tory MP came through 2-1. The highlight, a cocksure 48 in the second. In the third game, Ronnie Barker's 31 should have been enough to settle his opener against Ronnie Barker, but the Opal Owls and Porridge star missed an easy brown and O'Sullivan pounced before adding a scrappy second to advance. Stephen Hendry v Jimmy White was a bona fide classic, and should you and Michael ever do a podcast on the best matches in six by three recreation tournaments, this shall surely make the top ten. Give us time, Dave. Uh, Jimmy won the first on a respotted black. Hendry took the second in one visit before White flamboyantly cleared the colours when 20 behind to take the decider. So we move on. That left four players still alive. And despite some confusion about how it was mathematically or philosophically possible to have just one semi-final, that's how I played it. The winners would then split and play each other in the final. So Bill Maynard teamed up with Jacob Rees-Mogg to take on the superstar pairing of Jimmy White and Ronnie O'Sullivan. I'll bring you the results of the semi and final next week. Well, a lot to digest there. But I mean, if on, on paper, I think if you're pricing it up, you'd probably favour Jimmy and Ronnie to beat Bill Maynard and Jacob Rees-Mogg. Funnily enough, I don't think anyone will be pricing it up. The, the mm. one thing I will say is this. Jacob Rees-Mogg <laughs> was born the same year as Jennifer Lopez. Think about that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. If you wonder, by the people, Jacob Rees-Mogg, if you're wondering who he is, by the way, there'll be people out there around the world. Uh, he's a member of the government, um, a sort of very posh. He kind of trades a little bit on how posh he is. Um, he's son of, I believe, of William Rees-Mogg, the former editor of The Times. Uh Older Tony and all that stuff. Um, and Bill Maynard, as we've established, uh, was a comedy actor and a nuisance at the 85 final between Davis and Taylor. Um, so there we are. Well, it, of course, it, now here's the thing. It probably won't be next week when we find out the result because next week I will probably, if, it, if, if it's all arranged, be interviewing Jason Ferguson, WPSA chairman, maybe a little bit more serious, but we will find out the result of Dave's torment uh, eventually. Can you ask Jason if there's any possibility of WPBSA putting on this 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 sort of event? Well, well, here's the thing, okay. Neil, um, 
he's not. I don't think he's going to back down on this. I know he sent it to a few people. He sent it to broadcasters. It's not just a bit of a joke to him. This is he's kind of. I, I think he sees it as his pension. If he can get the rights to this, <laughs> it could go big. You know, so don't be surprised if he doesn't push it. You know, it's not impossible that it could end up somewhere. It's not the worst idea I've ever heard. Well, bearing in mind, you know, Neil commentates on pretty much every tournament. He's certainly well connected in the television industry and mm. could maybe kickstart it that way. I'd yeah. just love to know where, where he thinks this is all going to fit into the calendar because not exactly a lot of free weeks as it is. Here's a question then I'm going to throw at you that we haven't mm. discussed. If you could revive any old tournament, what, oh, would yeah. it, what would it be? Well, bearing in mind, I put it at number four on my all-time tournaments list. I would have to say the World Match Play. I just thought it was a really underrated event. It would be on around this time of year, of course. And it was the uh, the top players, the form players, all the matches, best of 17. For three of its five years, it was a best of 35 final. So that's certainly uh, one that uh, I would probably pick. What about you? Well, I quite like the old, and someone mentioned it last week, the old three-man World Cup. Um, oh yeah. The World Cup at the moment, the format is a little hard to follow. It's just two-player teams. That's a way of getting more countries involved, which makes sense commercially, of course. You can sell it, sell it to more territories. But the old World Cup, as I remember, it was kind of four days. You know, they they each played a couple of frames each, um, and you know, you got to see lots of players. You got to see players actually that you wouldn't see in any other tournament. I mean, in the early days, the Scotland team, you know, pre-Hendry or even after Hendry. Uh, just emerged. You know, you never saw those guys in any other tournaments. Um, so yeah, I think that was a, that was a sort of nice little tournament. Um, that you, was, you, part of the BBC portfolio in those days. Yeah, I mean, you say it was a four-day event, which it was from 1985 onwards. Prior to that, it used to go on for about nine days. There was certainly at least one year where there were six teams in it because there weren't that many countries capable of putting together a team of professionals. Mm-hmm. Scotland didn't even have three pros at the time. Yeah. It was uh, six days. They played two groups of three. Sorry, six. Sorry, six teams. Two groups of three. They basically spent a week playing the two groups, and then the top two in each group went through. So you basically took a week to eliminate two of the six teams, and then you had four left for the semi-finals and the final. Although I have to say, it's not that far away from the crazy format that uh, football will be bringing in for the World Cup from 2026. But yeah, the, the, the four-day event really was great. And I can tell you, actually, you know, growing up in Ireland at the time, when Ireland won it three years in a row, it was really, really big news over here, actually. And, um, you know, certainly helped to, to keep the game's popularity very high back in the mid-80s. We won it 85, 86, 87, Dennis Taylor, Alex Higgins and Eugene Hughes. And then the following year, they split them into Northern Ireland and Republic of Ireland. So they never actually got the chance to go for four in a row. And they both ended up getting beaten in the first round that year. I'll tell you another event that if a broadcaster, they could get a broadcaster, it'd be brilliant. Um, and footage has emerged of this, that there was a, a thing called New Kids on the Bays. Um, oh, yeah. And yeah. a few few matches have turned up. We're talking sort of early 90s here, and people like Barry Hawkins, you know, and, and indeed Paul Hunter played in it. Um, and Ronnie was involved there. He would play a frame against them uh, at the end, and Steve was involved. Um, and that's a way of just trying to encourage, I guess, young younger talent to come through and... You know, you maybe internationalise it if you can. It's all—it's easy for us to sit here saying this. You know, it's not up to us to put them on, but it'd be nice to think that you know we talk about grassroots and we talk about opportunities to play. It'd be nice to think that possibly you know stars of the future could be seen that way. I mean, obviously there used to be Junior Pop Black. Yeah. There was there was a thing on ITV that Ronnie played in Cockney Classic, was it? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Um, and and that and that new kids on the base. It's just a way of kind of 
hopefully maybe relating the sport a bit more to, to younger people who we need, I guess, to, to be interested in it. I think it was Wire TV was mm. the channel that showed New Kids on the Base. I actually watched one of the matches there a couple of months ago, and uh, not to you know take the mood down too much, but it was Paul Hunter who you mentioned there against Lee Spick. And oh, it was yeah. really shocking to think, you know, these, these two, uh, you know, promising kids in the mid 90s. And, you know, well, here we are now. I mean, they're both gone. It was, it was incredible watching it and thinking that. Mm. OK, well, yeah, that is a bit of a downbeat ending, I'm afraid. Mm, but, sorry. Um, yeah. It, well, listen, if, if you my advice is if you don't hear about the Triple Crown again, don't email about it. That's really the because literally that's the only reason I will mention it. From well, now on. Yeah. I've got to say, this takes me back. As you know, I used to present a football phone in and you yeah. get these really, really angry texts. People mm. saying things like, you know, you never talk about Sheffield United. You know, it's an absolute disgrace. And it's like, well, ring in and you can talk about Sheffield United. You know, that, that's <laughs> the thing, you know, if, 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 you know, and then they become convinced that the whole purpose for the show's existence uh, was, you know, anti-Sheffield United propaganda. This is probably at a time they weren't even in the in the second tier. But, uh, yeah, that's always the thing, isn't it? You know, when it's an interactive thing, you have to react to what people contact you wanting to talk about, especially on this, our, our, our first and on the basis of the content, possibly last, email special. Well, here's the thing about it, OK? Most of the correspondents, certainly on Twitter I've had about it, have been disagreeing with me, which is perfectly fine, OK? Perfectly fine. I'm just setting out the other side of the story, OK? And I've set it out, and I think everyone understands it, so like I say, unless anyone wants to talk about it, that you will not hear another word about it from me. Uh, let's, let's just As say, he says every week. No, no, I've said my piece. I, I was answering the correspondent. I've said my piece, yeah. and that's it. Okay, if you want to email us about anything else, or indeed that, whatever, snookerscenepodcast at mail.com. That's snookerscenepodcast at mail.com. Uh, by the time of the next edition, we will know who's won the UK Championship. And, you know, it's sort of shaping up already to be most likely one of the big hitters. We sort of said last week how the UK doesn't seem to have surprise winners. The whole of the top 16 got through the first round. And I'd be amazed if the final wasn't between a couple of the, the game's big hitters. It can't be Trumbo Sullivan. They're in the same half. Well, uh, on that note, Dave, I actually texted um, Matt Hewitt from the WPBSA ah. earlier on. And I said to him, can you remember the last time uh, all of the top 16 got through the first round? And he said, well, no, but I'm fairly sure it must have happened in one of Dave Tindall's tournaments. And as we agreed, <laughs> he plays so many of them. You have to think by the law of averages, it's bound to have cropped up at some point. You see, we're already entering sort of snooker culture yeah. in, our, yeah. in our own way. If, if Matt Hewitt is, is talking about it, then I suspect yeah, you're doing something right. Yeah. I suspect everyone is. Anyway, yeah. um, so that's it. Uh, thanks for your emails. Keep them coming. If we haven't read yours out, it's nothing personal. It's just that we, we, our hour is up, as David Dibbleby used to say. So um, that's it. Well, hopefully, well, as I say, next week I may well be talking to Jason Ferguson, but uh, our old nonsense, don't worry, we'll be back eventually. Thanks for listening. Sports Social Podcast Network.